those of us who have been in the workforce for a while, we can all look back and see the people who have guided us, helped make important relationship connections, and coached us through difficult decisions and work situations. If you're just starting your career, you need a mentor like this. If you've been in a career for a while, you might consider becoming one of these mentors. In this last episode of our graduation season mini-series on mentoring, we highlight the work of Matthew Lustig and Jamila Sly, who volunteer with First Workings. First Workings is an organization that helps open doors and provide support to young people from disadvantaged communities who are taking their initial steps into the world of work. They will also share some of their own vocational journeys, how mentoring has factored into their professional development, and how First Working mentees have changed their host organizations for the better. Matt Lustig and Jamilia Sly, thank you so much for joining us on Hardly Working today. I appreciate your being with us. I wanted to ask each of you to just sort of walk us through kind of your own background, how you got to where you are today, who are the people that helped you along the way. How would you describe, you know, sort of your own experience of finding your vocational calling in life. So let's start with you, Jamilia. Sure. So I think that there, how I came to be in my position now. So I should say that I am a community psychologist by training. So not a lot of people know what that is or what that entails. But basically, I'm a researcher. And how I got to be where I am today is with the help of a lot of people who were supportive, particularly mentors, I would say, in undergrad and graduate school, who really shaped um, how I saw myself as a, a person. And then, you know, as I progressed in my career, how I saw myself as a, a professional. So if I could just name a few people, I would say one person I was really, really integral is my mentor in graduate school, Dr. Rhonda Lewis. She, I think, really set the tone for um, how I should move and behave as a professional person in this uh, in academia. But also before that, I think in undergrad, I had the opportunity to participate in a program called the McNair Scholars Program. And it really, I think, set the stage for me to feel prepared and I guess adequate enough in a, in a number of ways uh, to even apply to graduate school. In that program, I learned a lot of skills in terms of um, how to write better, um, how to um, have some good presentation skills, to talk about my research. And my mentor there was Dr. Vicki Ferris at the University of South Florida. And so just a number of other people. I would say also uh, family and friends who are just really supportive along the way and encouraged me to continue to pursue my goals. So I'm curious. I wanted to back up just for a second and have you talk a little bit about you said at the beginning of the answer, you were talking about these people who helped you learn to move as a professional in the world. What did, what mm -hmm. did you mean by that? I would say if you could think of it as an apprenticeship, really. That's how my graduate advisor talked about it. And so what I mean by that is really just kind of going to the same and, and being in the same places that she was. So conferences, meetings where she was presenting her work, even if I didn't have anything necessarily to present at the time, just being there in the room with other um, professionals, seeing how she presented her work, how she interacted with people, 
was really um, instrumental. And then another person I want to mention is Dr. Angela Pascal. I had the opportunity while I was in graduate school to be her graduate research assistant. And that's also another way where I learned, you know, kind of how to have a research lab, how to run it, how to do literature reviews. So just kind of learning the things that you don't necessarily pick up in a classroom. I learned that I think through their mentorship and kind of just kind of following them around in a, in a lot of ways, not, not literally, but, you know, just kind of being, having access to the same spaces and places um, that they were in at the time. So one more question for you, and then we're going to switch over to, to have Matt talk a little bit. But how did it ever occur to you that becoming a community psychologist was something that you could do? When did that idea first enter your mind? Well, it entered when I was about to graduate from college. Not about to, but when I was thinking about, you know, what happens after I'm done with undergrad, where do I want to go? I've, I have majored um, in psychology and, you know, I think a lot of people hear that, you know, you can't really do very much with a psychology degree unless you go on to get a PhD. However, I wasn't really interested in like doing anything clinically, but because I was exposed to the McNair program and had, you know, some <clears throat> exposure to research and the research of uh, psychologist Dr. Ferris was doing at, at USF, I then learned that there was a lot of avenues that you could take in the field of research in, in psychology in particular. And so I researched a lot of different kinds of programs, doctoral programs in psychology. And one that I came across was community psychology. I hadn't heard of it prior to that, but it was something that really resonated with me because I wanted to have an impact on my community, um, first and foremost, where I came from. And I, by that, I mean, you know, black and brown people and trying to and hoping to be able to serve their needs in the best way that I knew how. And that's by using the research skills that I would you know, eventually gain. I think I had a really strong interest in community service at that time. I was involved in a club called Volunteer USF where we did these like alternative spring break projects and we just really had a lot of involvement with community members. And so I think from there is where I, um, you know, just grew this love of it. and I researched more about those programs to find out, you know, exactly what you would learn, what skills you could gain to become a community psychologist. And that's where I really thought that, you know, this is something that I would love to do and this is a way that I can contribute to the field, contribute to my community at the same time, because one of the philosophies of community psychology is that, you know, we don't have the expertise necessarily. It's the community members who kind of tell us what their, through their lived experience, what their problems are, what things that they would like to address in the community. And as community psychologists, we come in with kind of more of the technical skills and abilities to help them address those um, problems. That's terrific. Matthew Lustig, you work for a very well-known and prestigious Wall Street firm. Why don't you talk about where you came from and how you got there? I wish my story had so much to it in terms of the deliberateness with which you found your career. I sort of attribute how I got here to some combination of 
luck, opportunism, a lot of hard work, and just keeping my eyes open to opportunity. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My dad died when I was a kid, and I frankly have essentially, uh, for better or worse, never really had a mentor until way later in my career. And it was less of a career mentorship and more of a sort of, I would say, leadership mentorship as I started to do more and more outside the context of the firm. Sort of less maybe broadly applicable, but I went to School of Foreign Service because I was really interested in international affairs at, at Georgetown, wanted to be in D.C., had visions of myself doing some sort of global business policy work, you know, sort of rather vaguely defined, but thought I would go to law school first. As it turned out, my grades weren't quite up to the law schools that I wanted to go to, and the Ivies um, responded to all of my applications with a not-quite-yet kind of a response. And so I did the only thing I knew I was aware of to do next, which is I went to a commercial bank training program, which in 1982 was the thing to do if you didn't know what you wanted to do to get a little bit of commercial experience and then sort of reset and figure it out from there. So I would say I went there with no intention of being a banker, but as luck would have it or not, uh, I got called into the office somewhere midway through the training program, sure that I would be fired because my grades, you know, you don't know what your grades are. You don't get feedback mm. during the program. You submit a bunch of projects and nobody tells you how you did until the very end. And as it turned out, the bank really liked my work and asked me to teach it for a year. Wow which I was super opposed to because I came there to sort of get some banking experience or business experience and leave, either go back to law school, business school, or some such thing. But, you know, the one-year hiatus sort of caused me to have to sit back, A, fully digest the material because there's nothing um, like fear in front of a classroom to motivate you to really master the material, which was financial statement analysis, accounting, and the, the basics of financial terminology, business analysis, which I didn't really study as an undergrad. But I'd say I mastered that out of fear and um, taught for a year. And in exchange for that, the bank allowed you to pick anywhere you wanted to go in the bank, as opposed to the international department, which had hired me in the first place because I spoke Spanish and wanted to do international banking. You know, at that point, sort of looked around and basically had the observation that uh, Chase Manhattan Bank was not particularly well-suited for many of the businesses. And I personally learned about myself. I had no interest in talking to people my own age. I wanted to meet the, the CEOs of companies, decision makers, and I wanted to do something where the bank was really good. And with David Rockefeller as chairman, Chase was one of the few banks at the time that became aggressive in real estate lending, you know, coming out of the debacle of the 70s where it almost took down many of the major money center banks sort of as an industry. And so I went there for what I thought would be a short time with the hope that I'd be exposed to, you know, in that case, mostly family development businesses. And I became a construction lender, not because I was interested in it, but I thought I could deal with the folks who ran very large businesses. Chase was really good at it and aggressive and had good market share. And if nothing else, I would have made uh, created relationships with a bunch of extraordinarily wealthy families that someday you know, might be of some value, and I'd know something about real estate if I ever bought a house. You know, it wasn't that much more complicated in my own mind. So it was sort of the qualitative elements of it that I liked. But, you know, as luck would have it, the real estate business went from being a family and sort of insurance and bank-dominated business to what became clear to me would become an increasingly professionalized sector. Before going off to business school, uh, while in the application process, I got plucked by Another major, a major Wall Street firm, Drexel Burnham Lambert, which was very aggressive at the time, 
So I figured I'll do that for a little while before I go to business school because most people I knew who went to business school became bankers. So I get that out of the way and hopefully make enough to pay for business school. Anyway, from there, I think I was promoted four times in three years because I just looked around and thought this business, what could be simpler? You find clients, you raise capital, you move to the next one. Uh, it all seemed very straightforward to me. At the time, you didn't have experienced real estate investment bankers. You had folks from who were professionals in a variety of disciplines related to real estate investment banking, but there was no such thing as a real estate investment banker. So you got to create and think about how you wanted to approach the business. And coming out of a commercial bank, it turns out I was pretty good at taking my old clients that I made construction loans for and converting them into investment bank clients, and things went very well for me until uh, Drexel got in trouble. And then I came to Lazard 33 years ago. Mm, wow. Uh, on, on, on the theory that um, as this business professionalizes, Lazard was a premier strategic advisor, and it became, I think, obvious to me that the world of real estate, which today is a $15 trillion collection of assets in the U.S., had nowhere near the talent focus of young people focused in that area and was still sort of family dominated and you didn't have a professional class. And so it wasn't because I decided real estate is the thing for me. It just seemed like a gigantic opportunity, not as much talent focused in that direction. I, I was pretty good at it. I was making a good living. And so I was recruited by Lazard and um, because Drexel was having a problem at the time, uh, sort of came over here and the rest is kind of history. Made partner after five years here. Uh, but for a period of time, in addition to running the real estate group from the start, created a real estate private equity firm. And as a management matter, I ran the firm for the U.S. part of the firm. So I'm, I'm curious, at the beginning of your answer, you talked about, you know, your, your father died when you were young. You never really had a mentor. Were the, was there anybody along the way who kind of like uh, that you remember who either like gave you some good advice or just uh, took an interest in the development of your career? I, there's one person I would say who, when I left from Drexel to Lazard, I called an old client of mine who I thought was particularly wise and who I had a, a certain chemistry with and talked to her about the decision. I'd included clients in my decision to leave Drexel um, because I wanted them, frankly, to follow me to Lazard. And I was also interested in how they would react to it. And one of my clients said to me, um, a wonderful thing, frankly, and it was this. It was, you know, if um, Matt, if the President of the United States, back when that was a respected office, needed advice, would they come to you at Drexel or would they come to you at Lazard? I said, well, for sure, Lazard, who in fact had, had advised presidents and governments for years. She said, well, that's where you belong. You know, you belong in the top tier of whatever it is you do. Lazard is that, Drexel is not, and I think you'll do great. There. And they became a client at Lazard as well. So that was super helpful sort of advice, think about from a quality point of view. And I would say um, after I became well-established um, at Lazard, we brought in an outside uh, person to help us when our private equity business had a, a serious problem because he had an extraordinary reputation and uh, real estate leadership, government expertise, and was above reproach, a guy named Bob Larson, who... Um, you know, it was the closest thing I've ever had to a mentor. Mm. And um, and what was so wonderful about Bob is, A, he took a real interest in me. And it wasn't so much in my day job that he added. It was much more about, Matt, you have to get out and, and exert more leadership. And, 
you know, introduced me and spent the effort with me to introduce me to the organizations he was involved with, like the Real Estate Roundtable, which is the industry equivalent of the Business Roundtable for real estate. Um, I ultimately became chairman of the Wharton Real Estate Center, though I never went there, which was really originally from an introduction from him. And different industry organizations, almost all of which he led at one point in his career, sort of brought me along and really positioned me in terms of an interest on my part, but also introduced me to the senior people of these organizations as a sort of talented up-and-comer. And I got tagged, and um, it's been a fantastic part of my career to be able to be substantively involved and or lead a whole bunch of other industry organizations. Well, that, and that was really from him. That, that's, that, uh, that's terrific. You should do more. Yeah, that's that's really a terrific segue into the the substance of what we want to talk about today, which um, is just this this issue of mentoring, support, the introductions, the warm uh, handoff uh, to colleagues and and opportunities. And you all um, are both involved in first workings uh, as mentors, and I really wanted to talk with you about your involvement with with first workings and and hear a little bit about sort of how you got engaged um, in first workings and and why you think it's important. So, Matt, let's continue with you, and then we'll switch back to Jamilia. So I got involved with First Workings because Kevin Davis, who founded it, I'm very close to. And Mm. in fact, he's my brother-in-law. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. And great friends as well as brothers-in-law. But when he left, he was CEO of a very important company. And after the great financial crisis, he decided to retire and sort of get back with the balance of his career and was searching for things to do. And and, um, he went back to school. He did a lot of wonderful things. But Kevin has an extraordinarily generous heart and just a very capable person. And when he adopted and decided he was going to do this, I just thought it was a spectacular idea. The social capital piece, the getting talented young people to be exposed to career opportunities that they might not understand uh, or be exposed to, and then the finer points of how do you dress, how do you sort of fit in, what's proper office etiquette, how do you write a thank you note, how do you draft an email, basic stuff that frankly most kids don't know. Um, it's not just um, some of the kids at first workings, but the advantage that a kid has by being exposed early in their lives can set up a sort of more more sort of structured ambition. And I think one of the mistakes, it's not a mistake, it's an under-optimization that many kids do when they go to college is they go there, they get a great education, but there's no sort of, um, there's no sort of direction associated with it. They're there to learn, to enjoy the experience, which is a wonderful experience. But at the end of college, which is what I did, you look around and say, gee, I have to get a job. I need, I need to support myself now. What am I going to do? Which is really suboptimal. So I thought what he was doing, particularly with kids that wouldn't necessarily come by it. I mean, for me, I never knew what an investment bank was. And a, a mm-hmm. bank, as far as I could tell growing up, certainly was the place you made a deposit or withdrawal from your savings deposit account when your grandmother gave you a little gift. Um, I didn't really know anything about it. Through college, I, I learned more, but I thought the opportunity to take really bright kids, because he vets the young people. They're ambitious or they're not in the program. They're smart. They're accomplished. They have to do a lot of work to be part of it. And to expose them early as to what possibilities might be just, I think, substantially sort of turbocharges their chances for success, their focus, 
and what they get out of college and what they get out afterwards. Mm-hmm. And and some mentorships work super well. Not all do because there's a certain amount of chemistry involved. It's not a mechanical uh, process. But when you believe in each other and there's something that you both feel like you're getting out of it between mentor and mentee, uh, it can be extremely productive and it can really be an accelerant and a, and a help in direction as long as you really care about the person and their opportunities and you do it in a way that thinks about them, their strengths, weaknesses, interests, and and try to help them along. So I just thought, what an amazing idea. I hadn't heard of anyone doing something like that. I had been part of programs in the past that help, you know, in effect, people of, of color for the most part coming out of business school. And frankly, by the time you're in Harvard Business School, which is mm. where many of the kids mm-hmm. were in time, Wharton, I just thought, A, these kids don't need help. They figured it out for right. whatever, however they did it. You know, they'll be recruited and find great opportunities and, and they need more subtle direction perhaps, or some do. But the, the mentees that I was exposed to, frankly, taught me more than I taught them about how to navigate corporate life. And so I just, I, I didn't have a taste for it, honestly. I didn't think I was making enough of a difference. Mm-hmm. But I think if you go to high schools where you can affect where they go to college and how they approach college, it could be enormously powerful uh, in terms of the satisfaction I would get and hopefully they would get from being able to really make a change in someone's life and improve improve the outcomes and quality and happiness and, and frankly, opportunities for wealth creation, you know, which are substantial, at least in my world, my world being investment banking, finance, private equity. So I thought this was a great, a great place to spend time. You could really have an impact and you're getting them at the right time. Tons of potential, but still kind of clay to be formed. That's great. Tell us about how you got involved with First Workings. It's interesting listening to both of you talk, actually, but it seems to fit in different ways with both of your experiences, which were very, very different, right, in some important ways. Tell me how you got connected to it and why you think it's important. Yeah, so I think I agree a lot with what Matthew said, but how I was first introduced to first workings was through um a colleague at Sinai who's um I think he's on the board, Dr. Ayal Shamesh. We were corresponding about something else and he uh mentioned first workings that they're always kind of looking to connect with new um potential mentors and so I looked up on their web website and I really um liked the concept. Um, particularly that they were um, focusing on building social capital in high school, which I think is a really um, wonderful time to kind of build those skills up because I think it's really important um, to success and being successful in your career. I think part of my success can probably be attributed to knowing or being somewhat connected to the right people and just having some of those skills that you know, you pick up along the way with time as you participate in, you know, various different activities in college and maybe at your first job or something like that. But I think for me, some of these things, I think um, younger people, those who are in high school, maybe even younger than that, begin to become exposed to them um, much earlier uh, in comparison to um, people from more um, underprivileged underserved backgrounds. And so if you think of, if I think about myself, like 
applying to graduate school, learning to, um, you know, write a thank you note after an interview. These weren't things that like my parents were able to tell me about being that they like I was the first one in my family to graduate from college. And so they just didn't have that experience to be able to share those things with me. And there were really weren't very few people in my life at the time who were able to kind of shed that kind of light on those those things that you kind of pick up over time in terms of social capital and how to engage professionally. So I think that these are things that are really important. And I think that the focus on doing it at such a young age is really, really um, innovative and something that you don't see um, as often because there's lots of programs in college um, for kind of teaching these same kind of skills. But at the high school level, I hadn't seen anything like that. So I just thought it was really great that First Workings was doing something along those lines. Um, I also really liked how structured um, their program is in terms of how, you know, kind of like the curriculum that they have and how they have everything laid out in terms of topics that you focus on when you meet with your mentee. And that's really helpful mm. as, a, as a mentor um, because, it, you know, it takes some time to figure out how you want to engage and kind of thinking about how you want to um, or how you're going to communicate with your um, your mentee. And so just having that kind of framework, I thought was really helpful, being that, you know, we all have a lot of things that we have to do in our day. Um, just having that laid out, I think, was really helpful in fostering a, a good relationship with the with my mentee. So let me ask you this. First of all, how many mentees have you had so far as being part of this project? I was just introduced to First Workings last year. So I have one high school student, but after learning more about First Working and that they had a pretty sizable alumni um, network, I connected with, I think, three of their alumni to Mm. help me out on one of my ongoing projects um, that's focused on promoting breast cancer screening in African-born communities in New York City. And so they helped me out this summer, past summer, too in a more informal way, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Not, not exactly through their, their formal program. Yeah, still really invaluable experience, though, um, for them. Yeah. Yeah. When you kind of think of all the young people that you've been working with as a cohort, do you see any themes across those stories that First Workings is kind of helping to leverage or if it's a deficit fix or, you know, what, what are the commonalities do you think? Oh, most certainly. I don't like to compare yeah. people, but I've worked with, you know, a number of, of uh, mentees over the years and there's definitely a difference in the kinds of skills that the first working mentees came with compared to you know, some others who may not have had the opportunity to be exposed to those kinds of things. So I would say common themes that I was able to see in them was that um, all of them extremely professional, um, very, they just have great email etiquette. Um, They're very in tune with sticking to schedules and being proactive about scheduling meetings in some instances. being proactive in terms of thinking about, um, particularly for the alumni, thinking about the project that I had them working on 
being proactive about how we were going to sort of engage and execute that, and especially being that um, all of this was done remotely because of COVID restrictions. So yeah. I hadn't even really met them in person. But I think this just the level of professionalism and dedication and just a, serious, a level of seriousness that I did not see at that stage for some other um, people that I've worked with in the past. Is very evident. So what do you think they get out of First Workings? What did, what would they say, do you think, was the value of the program for them? Well, definitely the skills that they were able to um, obtain. I think the opportunity to um, have some internships and work with mentors in different industries and have that kind of um, exposure um, to them. And then I think another thing that's really that I really like about First Workings and that is important, particularly for mentees who come from underprivileged backgrounds, underserved backgrounds, is that they support them, you know, with a small stipend. Um, they cover some cost of transportation or, or lunch, you know, when it when it when it's needed. I think that's really important because sometimes just in a typical internship, uh, I know we've done this in the past and where I work, we don't have, sometimes don't have the resources to offer uh, paid internships. And that makes it difficult for some of these um, students who need to work to be able to pay their rent, bills, you know, what have you, have transportation. They don't have the option necessarily to participate in a paid internship, uh, an unpaid internship, I should say. And so I think that that's something that they really get out of it is that they have support all around. They're getting the skills, but there are, there's also some attention to um, sort of the, you know, the tangible um, needs of the students in terms of, you know, providing that support for transportation or what have you in, in the form of this, a stipend sometimes too. Yeah. Matt, I'd really like you to talk about without, you know, you know obviously we're not going to name names or anything, but if you could talk about a student that you worked with where, you, where you've really seen a lot of growth while they've been in First Workings? Sure. Although I would echo part of what Julia said about um, when we get to see them, when I have met um, my uh, mentees for the first time, in each case, they've been sort of obviously smart, curious, ambitious, and so, and sort of excited about the opportunity, which is an intangible that makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in, in a mentorship relationship. Um, having someone come to you, you know, eager to learn, eager to get something out of it in a way that's sort of healthy and eyes open is, um, is much more exciting than, than a personality type that's just more taciturn and, and not as good a communicator. But I think one of the things first working has done is set kids up to show up and introduce themselves in a way that sort of draws you in. Mm -hmm. they're interested and, and, and they've given a lot of thought. They've chosen an area of interest for them that First Working has, has sort of matched them up with. Um, and then you sort of take it from there. Look, my most recent, I'd, I'd say mentee, I've seen a lot of growth just because at this point, um, the person has graduated high school, is in college, we're still in touch. Navigating, you know, high school, I think, was something this particular mentee was really good at. She worked super hard. She was smart about how she worked and where she applied herself. Um, she was very genuine about her interest in her studies and her school. 
and her observations about her friends and other people were really sort of honest and constructive in terms of just one of the things I talk about is situational awareness and, and, and um, you know, what, what, how people act and react to things. I think in college, you know, that mentee has tackled a new set of challenges, which are different than high school, more challenging, um, farther from home, obviously, and, um, and a new environment. And to be able to converse around that, not just what's happening in your classes, your professors, but also social activities, how are you feeling, and, and seeing someone sort of mature and gain comfort with being away from home. And, you know, being in an environment that is more competitive than high school was, even though the high schools that many of the kids go to are very competitive, you know, the, the college can be much more so and uh, and less familiar, obviously. So, you know, by the time a high school senior has, has graduated well and gotten into college, they've mastered high school and then they have to start all over again. So the thing I would think about is mastering college. Mm. And it, it's a process. Uh, it requires growth. It requires assessment of yourself and opportunities and other people and where you want to invest sort of socially and academically. And I'm not sure how to describe it. It's just you can see it. As someone gets more comfortable, makes better decisions, thinks about their classes, isn't roiled by some of the emotional stuff that, um, in a serious way anyway, that can hit you in, in, in uh, first year of college. Um, you know, particularly there's a, there's a range of people in college that's way wider than the range of people you meet in high school. And, you know, in many cases, you sort of have to get used to it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, it's uh, as I listen to both of you talk, uh, what it makes me think about is a lot of the research um, work that I've done on something called non-cognitive or soft skills. But what it amounts to, I think. Uh, you, you use the the phrase situational awareness. You know, how do you how do you walk into a a a an environment or a business or a job uh, where you don't know what you need to know, and then figure out what you need to know, and then and then learn it. That's um, those are all very complex kinds of skills that we kind of don't think about. We either know how to do it or we don't know how to do it. But I have to believe the experience. I don't know what you think about this, but I'd have to believe that the experience with first workings was in part preparation for being able to do that at college. I mean, I think they're very purposeful about that, about setting expectations and trying to anticipate you know, frequently encountered situations and talk to the students before they hit them. You're not going to hit everything, but I do think my sense is anyway, certainly my mentee, this most recent one was, was very, uh, so I think well prepared to make assessments around that, mm-hmm. um, and to ask questions and to, you know, when, when, when she didn't know something to, um, to figure out how to learn more about it. So I do think first workings thinks about that sort of thing. This whole idea of social capital, I think, encompasses a pretty broad range of skills Mm -hmm. and familiarity. And I think, like Jamilia, that's one of the things I loved about the program, because I think your ability to, to, even if you're not comfortable, to understand what's happening or how to figure it out in a strange situation can be a critical skill set as you put yourself into unfamiliar situations and, and people you don't know. And sometimes can be intimidating. Yeah. So you sort of need a, you know, a system in your mind. Okay, how do I think about this? 
and what do I do? On that point, I want to I want to switch back to to Jamila real quickly and ask her a question yeah. about it. So, Jamila, you do community psychology, so you're looking at how communities function and how how communities think. The idea that and process what's going. It's not just these are not just individual experiences; they're community experiences that people are living through. So, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was just about the systemic problems that youth from disadvantaged communities face and whether a program like First Workings, do you ever have the sense that the program asks too much, that we're asking kids to make too many changes, to leave too much of themselves behind in order to take part in this kind of otherworldly experience of life in New York's business, healthcare, fast lanes. Has that ever crossed your mind as a concern? Not necessarily. I would say that, in fact, I can use an example with my mentee that I worked with this past summer. And upon first engaging with her, she was a, a junior in high school going on to be a senior. And some of the things we talked about were like about um, her decisions about which colleges she wanted to go to, kind of like making her list in preparation for applying, what majors she would be you know, kind of looking at. And upon like, you know, initially meeting with her, I think some of these things she might not have, she hadn't even thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the importance of first workings is that these are things that you need to think about. Like you should think about what your major will be. You should set some goals for, you know, how are you going to um, write your personal statements and make sure that they're um, done in a timely manner? Like, how are you going to make a decision about uh, which schools you, you want to go to based on the programs that they have, if they offer scholarships? I think all of these things are really, really important to um, the start of one's career. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's too early um, to think about them. And in fact, I think that it's, it's something that they should be thinking about. Um, even if it's kind of new, it's maybe uncomfortable. Um, I think that, you know, this is the part of life where we have to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, mm. but I think that they are, uh, you know, the better for it in the end uh, because there's a, you know, a plan of action. That's not to say that you can't make some changes here and there and, um, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. even just have a totally different um, trajectory, but I think that it's important to think about what your goals are um, and to think thoughtfully about how you want to achieve them. Um, in terms of the alumni that I worked with, I would say that those young ladies were um, top tier. I think having gone through first working um, the the mm. summer program, that they had they were kind of I guess in the first year, maybe second year of college, very clear having a plan of action for their career about what their next stages would be. 
And um, I think that they will go on to do wonderful things. And so I think it's not too early to start thinking about these things. It may be a little uncomfortable, but I think that that's okay. And I think that it helps to have somebody um, like a mentor to talk about some of these things um, with, especially if you feel comfortable enough to do that, to ask or just say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not sure about something. I'm, I'm not sure about this pathway. I'm feeling uneasy about it. I think it's great to have somebody that isn't necessarily a family member or a friend, but someone who's kind of hmm. been where you are going potentially and can give you some insight into what their journey has been like and just have you think about some things um, that you might want to consider as you're, as you're thinking about how you want to proceed um, with your career goals and um, for college um, in, in a lot of instances. So I give this talk to college students on vocational calling. As you said just a second ago, I always tell people, you know, you need to find somebody in your life who really knows you, cares about you, wants to see you succeed, but they aren't a family member because family members are too emotionally invested. You need somebody who's got just a little bit of distance so that they can you know, help you be objective about yourself and, you know, your needs for development. The, the reason I asked the question, though, are we asking too much? A couple of years ago, I was involved in helping to write a chapter for a volume of, a, of essays on work and youth. Like I said before, I'm, I've been very, done a lot of work around non-cognitive skills and soft skills. And, and I was challenged by several, several of the other authors that what I was doing or what I was proposing was was kind of forcing kids to code switch between their communities of origin, the business world that they were trying to get into, that that was kind of unfair and in its own way kind of discriminatory. So that's why I asked that question to see if how much does the business world need to change for to make it possible for kids from less advantaged backgrounds, I won't say disadvantaged, but less advantaged backgrounds to get a pathway in versus how much they need to change in order to adapt themselves to that environment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I will say, I think that a majority of students probably um, are code switching already and are probably used to that. I feel like I code switch. Um, you know, when I'm at work versus at not, um, not, should I have to do that? That's, you know, a question for debate. Probably not. I think what the more important thing to focus on is um, the skills. Mm. Um, so, you know, whether or not they should be forced or have to have to code switch, I think it's debatable. It's up to the person. I don't think that it's necessarily, I think that it is changing. Um, I think it's becoming more acceptable um, to not to have to do that. And I think that, I hope that more businesses and companies are um, open to um, different backgrounds, different ways that people present themselves when they come to work. I think what the underlying theme is, is that I want to make sure that um, students of color, people of color come away with is that they have the skill set that's necessary to be able to um, succeed in their 
in their jobs. I think the business world could do a better job of meeting people kind of where they are, um, not having to, and I think that that's something that is happening in, in large part as a result of the pandemic, as a result of kind of these social uprisings that we've been having over the past couple of years, where people are kind of um, opening their eyes and being more aware of sort of, I guess, this white supremacy culture. I think Tima Okun talks about this, about just the ways of being um, that in the business world, in academia, we're all kind of um, used to behaving in these in these certain ways that are mm-hmm. kind of leaning towards white supremacy, where um, there's a preference for um, quantity over quality a lot of times, um, where there's a, a need for or a notion that um, you should be paying attention to not speaking up or speaking out and just kind of get putting your head down and getting the work done, um, which is not really um, it's not how a large majority of people um, behave in terms of their ways of being outside of work. Mm. And I think that uh, a lot of people are opening their eyes to this, that there are different, there's more than one way of being, of showing up. And um, I think young people are kind of, are leading the way when it comes to this, which is really inspiring and that they feel more free in a lot of instances to be who they are and still show up and do excellent work. Mm. Um, I think it also helps when they're able to see people who look like them, um, who come from similar backgrounds, as as another way of saying that you belong here, you have value here, you bring something valuable to the table, and that you're you're needed here, um, and that there's a space for you. So I think that um, there's a lot of room for improvement, for sure. I hope things are getting um, better. Um, And I think that is being driven in large part by the younger generation. So we talk a lot about what First Workings does for students uh, in terms of helping them to prepare. And this kind of relates to the, the question that Jamila just answered. But how do the students change what happens in the business? Matt, I'm interested in your reflections. Do you do you think that uh, Lazard's participation in this, what sort of change do you think it's it creates within the company? Well, I think I think Jamelia is right that often the young people are the most expressive about appreciating the efforts that are being made. Um, and again, we've been virtual for a while now, mm-hmm. and so. It's less of an impact if you're doing this virtual. Sure, sure. And now I'm going back to when it was in person. The interaction with a high school kid and the pride that our bankers take Mm -hmm. in being able to interact with impact and have a relationship with a younger person where they feel as though they made a difference in their lives is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with Jamelia around the desire for diverse points of view, which isn't just you know, sort of background or color, it's it's a it's a broader expanse. But I think it's harder to achieve diversity with underprivileged kids because they, they don't always show up in the same numbers as, as other forms of diversity might or other sort of backgrounds of diversity might. Um, for us, though, I think it was just valuable. It was just a lot of pride 
mm. relationships. A number of the people in my group, uh, when we were doing it in person, have maintained relationships, independent relationships with uh, the mentees that have been through um, Lazard. And, you know, people come to work every day and are satisfied if they have impact in a positive way. And I think it's one of many ways that our employees can find impact and identify with a firm that um, that values diversity, that values giving back, that makes time in the day for interactions with folks that aren't purely business. It's about the future. It's, you know, fundamentally um, an investment. I mean, we've been doing first workings, I don't know, for six, seven years, I think. Um, the firm during the pandemic started a whole other program called Lazard New Visions Academy, which is much more inclusive and, and, and of employees. So we sponsor New Visions, which, which you know, are professional teachers who teach in schools in all, uh, from all five boroughs. And we sort of put them together and in a five-week curriculum, address high school kids with professional teachers, but a curriculum we designed. And roughly 100 of our people, you know, ranging from, you know, junior analysts through senior executives, come and interact with students as well, just because, first, you know, we couldn't possibly accommodate that many people in a first workings kind of environment and wanting more of our employees to have uh, an impact, an opportunity to do something that was socially meaningful and positive to them and positive to the firm. The firm has a substantial sort of financial and resource investment in it. Mm. So I still, what First Workings does because of the personal one-on-one -on -one and the sustained relationships, I find extremely valuable. And frankly, I've spent less time personally on Lazard New Visions, but it allowed, I think last summer, we had 100 people who are employees who spend time with students um, sort of individually. I don't know, but 800 people go through it. Um, so it's a, it's a variation and much bigger and frankly less, mm. less personal and off-site. But it's also, it's another way, and we try to find as many ways as practical for uh, our bankers to identify with meanings and values that the firm finds are important yeah. to the firm. And I think it's sort of mutually affirming. So when employees feel like the firm stands for a series of values that they identify with and they can spend some of their professional time and make an impact, you know, it's for a happier employee. And over time, it will result in more diversity. Obviously, investing in high school kids takes some time to redound to more employees from that pool. But you, but the sensitivity and the awareness, the interaction mm -hmm. across the range of our employees, I think, makes us a better firm, makes us better at recruiting, and um, and creates more um, sort of opportunities for interactions uh, on people from the program or people totally unrelated to the program, just an understanding sure, and a sense of how important it is to the firm and uh, the people that are involved. So That's terrific. The, the concept, right? There's a lot of different ways to do it. I think First Workings has, was early and strong and continues to be building on its strength in these abilities to have one-on-one -on -one, um, relationships or a group, a smaller group of people with a single um, mentee and when it works, it works really, really well, uh, meaning the mentorship. The training that they get in first workings is undoubtedly valuable for the rest of their lives. Mm. Mm -hmm. the, the individual mentorships, you know, I, I do think chemistry is an important part of it. So you hit or not hit. Yeah. Jamilia, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that, too. What's the, what's the backflow from your standpoint in terms of, you know, you're having influence in the lives of the mentors? How are they influencing the institution that you're working with? 
at Sinai in general, mm-hmm. there's been a huge push to uh, recruit and diversify the biomedical workforce. In fact, I'm a member of uh, the recently uh, developed Center for Scientific Diversity, which is led by Dr. Emma Ben at Mount Sinai. And really the goal of that center is to support, advance, promote, and diversify the biomedical workforce from the level of um, um, early career faculty um, down on to trainees, postdocs, um, and in some cases, students. And so what our, our center has been doing is really trying to create um, opportunities to be able to support these kinds of things and, and to bring in mm-hmm. trainees and students from these various different backgrounds. And I think that that is a big part of um, our relationship with First Working. It was not just me who participated as a sure. member. Several of our faculty um, in the Center for Scientific Diversity uh, participated as uh, mentees, mentors, I'm sorry. And we had our mentees come in to one of our meetings um, at the end of the summer where we had an opportunity just to learn more about their experience, more about them, what their goals are, what their um, future plans are. And I think that they were all wonderful. I think as far as the institution goes, I think that one of the things I hope that we are able to do is to do more outreach to high school level students. I think we, uh, they're doing a great job of, uh, you know, sort of engaging with students at the um, undergraduate, postgraduate level. Um, but I think that we can do some more, particularly um, in the Center for Scientific Diversity uh, with engaging uh, students who are, who are a bit younger. And I think that that can really have an influence. One of the things that we're planning to do is to have some, I don't know what you would call like incubator labs where students will have an opportunity to talk about some of these things and kind of come up with some solutions for how they see, um, you know, us making changes at the institutional level in terms of diversifying the workforce, um, sort of generating ideas from their perspectives about what things could be done um, to kind of make things a bit better for their generation and beyond. Um, and so I think that they, that this is a, Alpana is definitely coming away with a lot um, by working with um, mm. young people. Right. I agree with Matthew a lot too. Um, the individual uh, relationships with the mentors, I think those have the opportunity to be, be sustained over a long time. Um, but it really does depend on, um, uh, I guess, the chemistry and the, you know, the personality uh, matching between the mentee and the mentor. But in general, I think that um, it's, it's, it's been a great resource um, and a great collaboration to work with um, First Workings. And I hope that we are able to um, continue to have this partnership for a number of years. Well, I hope so, too. I want to thank you both. You've been very generous with your time, and I want to congratulate you on your engagement with this program. I think that it is, you know, these small building blocks of building, um, you know, social capital uh, opportunity, the on-ramps um, that we need to um, help 
people from marginalized communities find their way into the mainstream of American life, in particular to the economic opportunities that that life affords. Um, So thank you again. This has been terrific. And I look forward to checking in with you all again sometime in the future to see how things have developed. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.